From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Today's episode of Blue Sky takes a look at how we can make our workplaces better. Like it or not, work not only takes up a lot of our waking hours, it can also dominate our mind space. And this is relevant to our work at the Optimism Institute because what we do for a living can either make us feel better and more optimistic about life, or it can contribute to a sense of pessimism and despair. Today's guest represents an organization that emphasizes open and direct communication and feedback as a path towards greater job satisfaction and productivity. Amy Sandler is lead coach and podcast host at Radical Candor, where she also served as chief content officer and chief marketing officer. She's trained tens of thousands of people across a spectrum of roles, including CEOs and leadership teams, mid-level and new managers, and individual contributors just starting on their career path. A pioneer in bringing mindfulness-based leadership practices to the workplace, Amy was one of the first 30 certified teachers of the Search Inside Yourself program developed at Google. She introduced mindfulness training to executive coaching organizations Vistage and YPO, where she also held leadership roles. A certified breathwork meditation teacher, Amy's Mindful Meeting was voted the top work meditation on the Unplug Meditation app in 2021. Amy has an AB and MBA from Harvard University, an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA, has performed stand-up comedy and walked on fire seven times. Spoiler alert, you'll hear more about the fire walking later in the episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amy Sandler as much as I did. Amy Sandler, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I am so excited to be here with you today, Bill. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Terrific. Well, you have a very interesting, unusual, diverse background, um, and we'll get to a lot of that. But I'd like to start with Radical Candor, why you chose to do this work, how you found out about it. Did you start with the book? And what was it that drew you to come and, and work at the organization? Well, it's a great question. And just for folks who might not be aware of Radical Candor, Radical Candor is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestselling book by Kim Scott, really about how can we succeed at work without being a jerk. <laughs> um, and and it came out in 2017 or so. And Kim Scott and I had actually gone to business school together, but we didn't know each other at business school. We had some friends in common. And when I was working at YPO, Young President's Organization, at this point about 10 or 15 years ago, we were working on a project where I was introduced to her and we just instantly hit it off. And when she launched the book, Radical Candor, 
what happened, she was in Silicon Valley, her background had been at Google and at Twitter. And it was the kind of thing where she did this video, almost like a TED talk for first round, sort of an incubator. And the, the talk went kind of viral. So I think even before the book came out, there was all this buzz around it and all this, uh, hey, create a company. <laughs> You know, and so she, with uh, Ross Laraway at the time, created a company um, originally with the idea of making an app to help people have better feedback conversations and doing some training and some workshops. And so I was first introduced then um, because she knew that I had been doing uh, workshops in the CEO space and especially around mindfulness and emotional intelligence we can talk to. But what happened was, I do think there is a world where technology can be a really helpful facilitator of these feedback conversations. But at the time, they realized, like, if we're going to have these conversations, we actually want to look like human to human and less about the tech. And so so Jason Rosoff came on and sort of created 2.0, I would say, of Radical Candor, which was really looking at focusing on us as executive education, training, keynotes, workshop, consulting. And so I started kind of in that round just at the same time, um, kind of fall 2017, which we're coming on on six years. And it's been incredible, just the growth, the appetite for the work. We can get into more of what we do uh, from the work. But um, but that was sort of an interesting origin story of let's use technology to have conversations. It's like, no, maybe we actually need to focus more on the human to human part of it. Well, and on that, so one of the one of the guiding principles, as I understand it, and it's it's very succinct, and I really like it, is is caring personally and challenging directly. Because from my experience, um, there are a lot of folks who care personally, and then are afraid to challenge, and then there's some who have no problem challenging directly, but you don't get the sense they care about you at all. <laughs> so, how you marry those two things, caring personally and challenging directly? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Really, the reason why it's called radical candor is because it's rare. It's rare that we can do both of those things. And so I think to your point, it's really a simple idea. Like the simple idea is we can actually do both. Um, And in fact, one of the challenges I think that came out of almost the initial success of radical candor was that people interpreted the phrase as an excuse to just say whatever you wanted. Right. It's like, oh, and and especially if you do some air quotes and you say in the spirit of radical candor, this podcast sucks. You're an idiot. Like, no, that is not the spirit of radical candor. That is the spirit of what we would call obnoxious aggression, where you're challenging, but you're, you're not caring. And so one of the things was to have to correct for that. The phrase that I would invite people to think of is compassionate candor. The compassion is really looking at this person as a full human being and then taking the action because we care to tell them the thing that they need to know. And and what we will often do when we are in our workshops, what Kim has a lot of in the book are stories where we may have received radical candor. And what does that look like for you? And so I'm happy to share a story, but I think the reason why stories are so important is you start to realize like, when this person did this thing, like what did the care personally, what what does that actually mean for me? So for me, it's, you know, they took the time to have this conversation. They identified something that was really important for me as a human being for my for my growth. They saw what was possible for me. They were kind of dialed into some version of success that I had. So I can cer- certainly share a story if that's if that's helpful. But I think for everyone listening, 
thinking about those people in your life that you would appreciate getting some feedback from and like what specifically do they do that sort of lands in this idea of caring personally, seeing you as a full human and how do they challenge you in a way of being clear in service of your of your growth? Well, and one of the things I've seen you do, uh, your organization doing its work, and it's it's mentioned in the book, I believe, is we often think about feedback as as boss to subordinate, um, but you are very encouraging of supervisors to sit down regularly, maybe on a weekly basis. I think you you compare it. You said you'd rather floss than have root canal. Uh, I think of I think of it as a self cleaning oven, sort of same idea, but where where the supervisor will say, "What did I do in the last week that you wish I wouldn't?" or "What what ways can I improve?" It seems like if you can be vulnerable that way as a supervisor, it also opens up that more of a two way conversation. Is that a fair way to describe it? I, I am so glad you brought that up. That is probably, if not the most important point, one of the most important points, which is Kim wrote the book. Uh, targeted especially for managers, like how to be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. And the reason is because even if we don't think of ourselves this way, if we do have some sort of hierarchical power or other forms of power, we're not necessarily getting all the feedback that we need to, to grow. And more important, how can we cultivate the kind of safety where we lay the power down so that people feel willing to give us the kind of feedback that we need to grow? So before we even think about giving any criticism, radically candid or not, hopefully radically candid, we actually start by getting feedback and especially by getting criticism. And just in our, just to be sort of definitionally, we like to think of feedback. Feedback is really just sort of getting an input of, you know, what's working well, what's not working well. And so we would think about it both as praise sort of do more of this, um, sort of continue what you're doing. And criticism is either stop doing something or start doing something else, right? So it's often different feedback models might have sort of stop, start, continue. So I think for us, praise and criticism, we want to be giving more praise than criticism. And the reason is because praise shows people what good looks like. The metaphor that I like here is like, we're putting our foot on the gas when we're giving praise. We're showing what good looks like and not the kind of praise like, great job on the podcast, Bill, but like what specifically, and we have a model, we can get into the model, but we've got to start by getting feedback, by soliciting feedback. And this can be difficult for people, especially when we haven't done it. But this is really, first of all, how we start to build more safety, how we model the kind of behavior that we're looking for and how we can really grow and become even better leaders, which is, I think, what we all want to do. That viral video Amy mentioned was also my first exposure to Kim Scott's work. And back then, for me, it all made perfect sense right away. And summarizing radical candor as caring personally and challenging directly makes all of this very clear and digestible. I liked Amy's anecdote about setting out to turn the lessons of Kim Scott's book into a training tool. The first idea was to create an app, but given the human-to-human nature of the work that Kim Scott recommends, it was decided to ditch the app in favor for training that takes place between people. Technology's great, but it can't always replace the real thing. And having served in leadership positions myself, I wholeheartedly support the idea of giving feedback to supervisors. Too often, bosses are tiptoed around, and while they think they're doing their job the best way possible, they're not. 
and no one feels capable or confident enough to say anything about it. Now back to my conversation with Amy Sandler. Why do you think it is, Amy? What is it about human nature that makes this difficult? You know, especially, it seems to me it's very difficult for caring people sometimes to give, I don't want to say negative feedback, could be negative, constructive feedback. Is it just we all want to be liked? It just makes us, like, what is it that you, that you I would assume, in your, in your work, you have to break through to make this all effective? Yeah, we we do. And we have um, one of the things that's been exciting with the transition to more virtual sessions is that we've used a lot more polling. And one of the things that we'll often do in groups is talk about what's hard for you about giving criticism, what's hard for you about receiving criticism. And so just as an example, some of the things that are hard about giving criticism that we have as options are, you know, I don't want to hurt the person's feelings. So that to your point, I don't feel like I know quite what to say. Like, so we give them a model of what we don't tell you what to say because it's all going to be very dependent on who this person is, who you are in a one-on-one relationship. I don't like, is it worth it? Like, like it's the sort of proverbial juice worth the squeeze. Like, is it worth it me telling Bill this thing? Or, you know, I'm worried about retaliation, right? Or, or, and then sometimes when the sort of something else is often, I've tried it before and it hasn't worked and sort of the like, what's the point? Again, sort of the juiced worth the squeeze. So I would, I would look at the, these things, there's sort of this human, t- like our own discomfort. And another way to answer that question is let me just quickly walk through the mistakes that we make when we're not practicing radical candor, because I think that as a mental model can help, can help our listeners. So one of the things we'll do again, we'll sort of articulate for us what radical candor or compassionate candor looks like. And then we'll talk about these mistakes that we make. And the reason why I think this is so helpful is because, you know, it gives us permission to, to kind of mess up with it and still like keep working at it. Like it's okay that we're going to make mistakes. Um, and so one of the, the brilliant things that Kim Scott did, I think was creating kind of a two by two matrix or, or framework, you know, so you've got sort of care personally on the vertical axis, you've got challenge directly on the horizontal axis. And we like to joke, you know, if you didn't work at McKinsey, here's your two by two matrix, like just put any hard thing into a two by two matrix. Right. So, so there you go. Care personally, seemingly at odds. So I talked about the challenge directly if you're sort of high on challenge, low on care, we call that obnoxious aggression. This is like you said, for some people, this is easy. I can be really clear. This is like you saying to someone, you know, someone has spinach in their teeth and you say, that's disgusting and throw a, 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 a toothbrush at them. They know they the, what the problem is, but you've blown up the relationship because you did it publicly, you did it aggressively, you didn't do it privately. So that's sort of one mistake that we might make often after we've acted like jerks is rather than kind of moving up on that vertical care personally dimension, we move over on the other side where we don't care and we don't challenge. And we call this one manipulative insincerity. And this one is really interesting. Why aren't we caring? Why aren't we challenging? And again, part of why sharing stories is so important. Like I will share a story about a time 
when I landed in this quadrant. <laughs> and, you know, it can be fun to tell stories when you've acted like a jerk. Sometimes it's sort of get it off your chest. It can be fun to tell stories when, oh, I just cared so much. I, I couldn't hurt this person's feelings. This one uh, where we're not caring and we're not challenging is a little tougher to really like look yourself in the mirror. Like, because for me, this goes against everything that I hold true of my values, right? Like I want to be caring. I want to be clear. Why did I act this way? Why did after five years of working on a big technology project, when I'd written this very obnoxious email to the CEO and the chairman of the board saying how the project owner was wasting all this money, you know, it was very satisfying to write that email because I felt like I wasn't being listened to. I was kind of several layers down in a hierarchy and I just felt so frustrated. So there was some satisfaction in that, but first of all, it, it was not a great move for my career. But I think more important, like everyone deserves this one-on-one -on -one you know, conversation, like no matter where you are in an organization. And often what happens, you know, after you've had those episodes of maybe lashing out a little as you move over into this quadrant. And what happened for me in this specific instance, and I'm going to share it because I think people can relate to it, is that I'd been working on this project for several years. I'm now still at the same organization. The project is ongoing. New project owner comes in and says, the reason why this project didn't work was because there was no research. I had spent years doing research. I had spent more years trying to tell people about the research. And at that point, I was just like, yeah, sounds great. Good luck. You know, and again, not how I would like to be. But I think when we look at, especially now, if you feel burnt out, if you feel stressed, if you feel like no one's going to do anything anyhow, if you already feel like I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, like then that that's some of the root stuff also. Right, I'm glad you brought up the uh, spinach and the teeth because one of the things that that has, I've tried to use to help me, and I and I'm going to confess, I was the uh, caring person. That I was the ruinous empathy person. Ruinous empathy, right? High care, low yeah, challenge. And, yeah, and I just I was the don't want to hurt their feelings, makes me uncomfortable. But if if I had spinach in my teeth, I want someone to tell me. Hundred <laughs> percent. I want to know because no one's going to listen to anything I'm saying in the meeting because I've got this spinach in my teeth. And so I, I actually had a deal with my assistant years ago. I'd say, okay, if I, if I ever come out of the restroom and I have not zipped up my fly, or if I ever come back from lunch and there's something in my teeth and you don't tell me you're in big trouble, <laughs> you know, I need to know before I head out into the world. And I think it's a helpful way as the person giving the feedback to think about that, that you want someone to tell you. So back to a work context, if I'm at a company and I'm doing something that's going to that's going to limit my ability to to rise in the organization or or achieve success in that place because people aren't telling me, I want to know. And so I think it's a helpful way to think about it. It's it's so helpful and that's often exactly what we will talk about just to go back to a version of that example. I Look, I am with you. I am for me it's far more natural, far easier for me to be easily on the high care personally, less easy to be on the challenge directly. I I teach radical candor to hold myself accountable <laughs> to doing this, right? Like I have to force myself. I just know myself. I have to teach mindfulness to make sure that I practice mindfulness. I have to teach radical candor to make sure that I'm I'm walking my walk and a few years ago, we were doing a workshop with Second City Works. They're the improv group. And an improviser, he I just met him once before, we're literally about to go on stage talking about radical candor and his fly was down. And my first reaction 
was like, okay, who's going to tell this guy his fly is down, right? Like that's my first, like somebody else, somebody else is going to do it. And and I had to laugh because I was like, first of all, Amy, literally you're teaching radical candor. And second of all, there is no one between this person and the stage and the audience than you. And so I pulled him to the side. I told him he was an improviser. So of course he was hilarious about it. But the reason why I love that story is just kind of naming our tendency of like looking around like somebody else or, or they're smart. They'll figure it out. It's like, no, it doesn't matter. They, they don't know. They're, you know, when I share my stories, it's usually things when I'm doing something that I have no idea. And that's why we need this feedback. And so the biggest thing also from improv that I love that I want to bring into the conversation is before you go on stage doing any kind of improv, you say to each other, got your back. And for me, that is the sort of secret sauce of high performing teams, which is that I know, before, like you were saying with your assistant, like I know I feel, we talk about psychological safety, you know, from Amy Edmondson and Harvard Business School. I can feel safe going on stage because I know if I'm messing up, or by the way, if I'm doing something great, like you're going to tell me, right? Like you're not going to let me go on stage and you've got that investment in me. And so rather than, you know, that sort of low lying feeling of like, I think something, <laughs> I think something is going on, but I don't know what, and why is nobody telling me what's happening? Yes. No, improv is a really interesting, uh, example or analogy because I've never done it myself. I've always wanted to, but I, I know people who do and they've, I've heard that I've got your back. And I've also heard that, you know, that is the ethos that one of the challenges in improv is sometimes you just have a blank or it's just not working. And instead of, instead of the others trying to look good at your expense, they'll help pull you out of it. I've got your back and I'm going to, I'm going to do the next funny thing or, or change the plot line here to pull you out of it. Um, it's an interesting way to think about the workplace and, and, and always be looking around for folks who could use that help or feedback. Absolutely. And, you know, just to like, especially because I would say, just to go back to the, the book itself, Radical Candor, we're talking about feedback, but just to kind of broaden the lens a little bit, this is really, you know, if you think about what does a, a manager do, um, first create a culture of guidance. And so that's really what we're talking about. And I will just say, we like to use the word guidance rather than feedback. I know that feedback is sort of the word in the marketplace, but sometimes feedback can land very like, I know everything and you're an idiot. You know, that's not at all what we're trying to say here. We want it to be helpful. But there's also, you know, how can I develop sort of the full potential of my team? And so there's a lot of content around, you know, career conversations and what direction do you want to take your, your career in and how can I support you? And then how, and then third, like, how can we get stuff done collaboratively. Like we are working together because we believe that we can get more done together rather than individually. And so when you think about it from all of these pieces, these one-on-one -on -one relationships, because that's really what we're, we're really talking about is how can I build more radically candid, more trusting relationships where it's that spirit of I've got your back. We're here to like, we're going to grow together. And I think the biggest sort of what we call mistake quadrant that you mentioned that I think you and I probably both fall into. And, you know, I think the majority of people is this ruinous empathy where we care so much and, you know, for me, I teach radical candor because I lost a really important relationship because I kept being afraid to tell this person something they needed to know. It was a close friend 
And then it all blew up when a new boss came and I didn't tell them what they needed to know and their job was on the line. And so for me, it's those moments. And I think what's most kind of poignant about those moments is is that when you think about the difference between ruinous empathy, which is high care, low challenge, and that other one, sort of manipulative insincerity, this is when we're talking about people, the office gossip, both of those were true for me. What do I mean by that? I mean that part of me was worried about hurting this person's feelings. I I really did not want to hurt his feelings. But if I'm really honest with myself, I was also looking out for me. How is this, you know, I want to be liked. I don't want to deal with this person's possible anger, right? And so what do you need to practice radical candor? You need a lot of self-awareness, emotional management, relational awareness, and really being willing to look at yourself like, why am I not acting in a way that's aligned with what really matters to me? I really like the example of the spinach and the teeth. We can all relate to the embarrassment we feel if after a long meeting with a group of coworkers, we see our smile in the mirror and there's a big green reminder of the salad we had for lunch. Wouldn't it have been far less embarrassing for someone to have gently let us know during the meeting so we could take care of it? Now that's a relatively minor thing, but let's say that the glaring issue that everyone in that same meeting noticed is something that could actually impact your career in a negative way. For example, when you present your ideas, you speak so quickly that no one can understand what you're trying to say. Or your eye contact is lousy, or the slides you presented had typos. Thinking about it in this way, we can see why it's so important, as Radical Candor suggests, to care personally and challenge directly, to let this person know of these issues so they at least have a chance to correct or work on them, as opposed to having them blow up later in the form of being passed over for a promotion or worse, fired. And now, back to our conversation. So going on six years now, you've worked with a lot of different organizations, different people. Can you point to organizations, teams, companies where, you know, a few years since you've worked with them, that they have a whole different feeling about their culture? And because one of the reasons I am having you on here on the Blue Sky podcast at the Optimism Institute is to, to talk about how work environment is so important to people's outlook and I think creating this kind of an environment could be so positive for so many people. I'm wondering if you can can give examples or stories of success and how that's felt. Yeah, I love that question. I, I think one thing that we can be really optimistic about is that we're growing. Like uh, this, this company, I don't think 10 years ago, there would have been this kind of appetite for the kind of work that we're doing. Um, maybe even five years ago. I mean, it's been, it was sort of out there and in in the news, but there's there's such an awareness now of really, you know, how can I be more compassionate with the people that I work with at the same time that I'm getting stuff done and that we don't have to sort of choose, you know, one or the other. A, a few things that give me give me some optimism. Just yesterday, we were having a call with a small and growing um, nonprofit that I did an in-person workshop with them, and then we did a virtual workshop with them. And despite sort of all of the different timing issues, you know, they gave us this report that in our managers meeting, we're sharing about, you know, how to support each other, how to have these one-on-one meetings where we're soliciting feedback, how to model um, at a leadership level, the kind of work that we're doing. And I, I said at the end, I said, I just want to say, I am so inspired that you all took the time to have this conversation and see how can we do more. So, you know, one of the things is that 
just the very act of people wanting to start to build this into their one-on-one meetings, that I as a manager am soliciting feedback, that in our manager meetings, we are having conversations. What are we hearing? How is this rollout going? How can we better support people? Like That's the kind of thing I take just great comfort in because look, this is behavior change. Ultimately, this is kind of individual behavior change. And the reality is, is that, you know, and I say this as someone who has a bike that's turned into more of a, you know, clothes hanger than, than anything else is that like behavior change can be hard. And so there's so much more force of sort of just like, you know, inactivity going back to the norm that when I hear about groups that want to keep what we would call sustainment. Um, so whether it's through book club discussion or these check-ins, like we're, we're seeing, I think a good bit of not look, not everyone. Some people just want to feel like they had the awareness and then that will go into just another toolkit. But when I see organizations where they're really doing training and by the way, training, not just at the leadership level, but at the mid-level manager level, and and perhaps even most of all, supporting their individual contributors. Because for people at that level to feel more confident to develop feedback that they need rather than being like, oh my gosh, if I got a piece of criticism, that means I'm going to be fired, you know, but really developing that growth mindset and and showing that that's actually what we're supporting, that that really gives me a lot of optimism. We really encourage people to think about these conversations as development conversations, as growth conversations, so that when, by the time you have your annual, whether it's capitalized or not, performance feedback conversation, like there should be no surprises, right? Because we've been having these ongoing conversations. And again, if I'm your manager, you've been giving me the feedback. Like we, first of all, we want your one-on-ones as a manager to be a time with, this is the direct reports agenda. You as the manager are there to clear obstacles. This is about what is going to be the best use of time for your direct report. And this is also a time when you are getting feedback from your direct report. And then there can be time baked in, you know, let's say that um, I'm going to do, we have a meeting and I'm, I want to tee you up uh, to start delivering more client presentations, right? So we've agreed before the meeting, okay, Bill, you're going to take that first question from the client. And then let's save a few minutes at the end to see how that went. And so these sort of brief debrief meetings so that we, to your point, like we start to normalize it. So it just becomes something that we do. And it's like, Hey, it was really great when you did this. Um, you know, when this question came up, let's, let's explore how we might've been more succinct in our response, you know? So this just, again, this is what we mean by brushing and flossing that these conversations are in service of your development rather than attached to, Oh, you got a three here. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden it feels really, it already feels scary. You know, there, the, the neuroscience of this, um, there's a great quote of saying, you know, I think it's from David Rock from, um, the center for, for, uh, neural leadership Institute, you know, the very act of someone saying, can I give you some feedback triggers that fight flight freeze response, right? All of a sudden it's like saber two tigers are coming at you, you know, and it's terrible, especially if it's your boss. And so there's a very big shift when we go from, can I give you some feedback to soliciting feedback, getting feedback? It's really interesting. I also think my experience has been that it's helpful to, if the feedback you're giving 
is tied to organizational goals or values or so if organization says we're going to be all about you know honesty or we're we're going to be all about customer centric service and you're giving feedback and you can say and and my concern about that is that it's taking us away from our customer centric focus right so i think the more it because it also makes it less personal sometimes i think the the concerns people have is i don't want this to be personal you know you're not gonna tell someone they dress funny but if you say (laughs) right so there's that line but i think the more you can tie it back to companies objectives missions values it's taken better i think Uh, absolutely well and and just to kind of one thing we always like to say is like we wish we had emotional novocaine like we don't know how it's going to be taken like if we did i would probably not be on this podcast because i'd be on a desert island somewhere although actually i probably would be on the podcast because i love talking to you and, and about optimism but one of our biggest points is how can I take my feedback, my guidance out of personality? So exactly like what you're saying. What do I mean by that? Out of something that can't be changed. The model is very much about behavior or work product that can be changed. And so we've adapted, and you might know this model from the Center for Creative Leadership. They have a model, SBI, um, Situation Behavior Impact. And we've adapted that a little bit to focus also on this idea of a next step. So the model that we like speaks exactly to what you're saying, which is context, observation, result, and next step. So just like as an example, and by the way, this goes for praise as well as criticism. So context could be in the quarterly budget review meeting with the CFO. Like that's all you need to say. Observation. And and this one I think is important because in our minds, uh, we tend to go right to, you did this and you did that, right? We sort of go to judging, but this is, we want to take it out of judgment into what did we observe? Well, maybe we observed that you had, uh, you know, a succinct, correct analysis that, that might be praise, or you answered the question succinctly. That's praise. Maybe, uh, criticism could be what we observed was that there was an error in your growth rate. Okay. Now, this is really where it matters, the result. And this goes to what you were just talking about of how can I tie this to something that, like, what is the most meaningful thing here? Maybe this is about their their career path. Maybe what's most meaningful is, you know, you're going to get that promotion or you're not going to get that promotion. Or maybe the most meaningful thing is this is aligned with, you know, our organizational metric around like what you are saying, but what, how, how can I tie this feedback to something that matters to this person? And do I know them well enough to even know what those things are? So whether it's about a promotion or whether it's about the CFO knows that, you know, they can trust our numbers or, or not. And then we added this idea of a next step because you know, especially with praise, people sometimes think like, oh, praise is care and criticize is challenge. It's like, no, the whole, again, we're doing both. So what do do I mean by um, a challenge for praise? A challenge could be, hey, I'd love for you to do the same thing in our meeting with the CEO next week. Or a challenge could be, um, hey, I would love for you to show the team how you built that deck. We could learn from you. Right. So some spirit of like ongoing. And then maybe for criticism, this is really where we move almost from like feedback to feed forward, where it goes into more development. Like, hey, let's we let's meet next week. Let's go through the uh the PowerPoint and let's plan for any questions the CEO might have. So I think this is a this is why we added this because there's this really important point of like, how can we move these conversations into sort of a developmental coaching conversation if possible? Okay, first a quick aside. 
If I were starting a new rock band today and needed a name, I'd have to consider Emotional Novocaine. But I digress. It's great to hear Amy talk about finding optimism in the very fact that her organization is growing. The appetite for the work she's doing makes it clear that it's worth doing and having an impact. I also think it's important to note what she says about the fact that you can be compassionate and still get things done. A lot of people think, I believe, that to be a doer, you can't have time for the soft stuff or to show an interest in helping the people around you. The work of Amy and the folks at Radical Candor does a great job of disproving this notion. I next wanted to ask Amy about the power of not just constructive criticism, but straight up positive feedback. I love the expression, catch, catch someone doing something right and, and calling it out. I think it's really important. And, and maybe that makes it easier than to also give the tougher feedback, right? hundred um, percent. I love that you brought that up, sort of naming and praise and specific and sincere praise. So, so two things just to bring in. One is that we like to say that radical candor is measured not at my mouth as the speaker, but at the other person's ear as the listener. So I might've thought I was giving you specific and sincere praise. And first of all, you didn't even know it was praise. (laughs) and It sounded like a bunch of BS, right? So how is it landing for this other person? That's kind of thing, thing one. And then the other thing, what's been really amazing about praise and the benefit of, um, you know, from, from some, all that shifting of what's happened from moving from in-person to virtual, We've, we've created a bunch of workshops where we would introduce the concepts and then have a follow-up workshop. So by that, I mean, we would tell people important to ask for feedback. They would create some questions to, to solicit feedback. And then we would tell them about the importance of praise and give them the model and sort of go look for the good stuff. Like you said, naming the good stuff, calling out the good stuff. And what happens is when we check in after that is they realize like, oh, like there's good stuff happening all the time, but you know, we have a negativity bias. And so like, you don't have to wait until, you know, we just got the $10 million deal to notice and name specifically, sincerely what is happening that's good. And that's why, again, that sort of putting your foot on the gas, it builds your relationships. People feel seen and appreciated. And I think most important, it shows the team what good looks like, right? Because like, and and do you even know what good looks like? Like, have you defined clearly for your team what good looks like? Right. No, and I think too, um, sometimes, especially if you're in a very senior position in a company or any organization, you don't realize just how powerful your words are or your actions or, and, I, and I've told the story in another podcast. So if you're a frequent listener, I apologize. But when I was in charge of a cable network many years ago, I was in the habit of writing personal notes of thanks, great job on this, or and that you know we'd inner office mail them the way you used to. And I remember one I, a month after I would have done this, I'm roaming the halls and I stopped to talk to someone in her cubicle, one of those soft sided cubicles. And as I'm talking out of the corner of my eye, I see my note pinned to the side of her cubicle. And it was like I, it took me thirty seconds to write that note. It was very sincere, but it was a very quick. And it's sitting on her cubicle. And so I think it's, it, now if I'd written her something nasty, she probably wouldn't have put it on the cubicle. But, but that sort of ripple effect of that kind of praise, especially the more senior you are in an organization, or maybe just from anybody, it doesn't take a lot of time and it has huge value in an organization. Huge, huge value. I love that story. I think, you know, there can be the benefit of appreciation, 
like that if we're not using sort of the whole core format of just like, but taking the time and the sincerity. And I will say there's something about even like the handwritten note. Um, sort of, I have a version of that where I was doing a lot of mindfulness uh, workshops for CEOs around the world. And someone had taken a, one of the CEO leaders had taken a photo of me teaching and it became a postcard, but they, they like did the name of the presentation and they shared like one or two key takeaways from the session. And it's like those little, and yet like I have it and I, you know, it's like, right. Because you sort of feel seen and appreciated. And then you also know what that other person values. Like, because, you know, we do this exercise where people at the end of a session will give each other some specific and sincere praise. And just as an example, like I had, I had one group where someone said, you know, I was writing these Friday, like wrap up emails for 10 years and they would just go off into the ether. I had no idea. This person said in that exercise, like, oh my gosh, I love those emails so much. And, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so it's like just those those moments. And I think there's so many things like that, where we sometimes take what people are doing for, for granted and, and not just the relationship building, but, but again, like showing what good looks like, and it feels really so good to be seen. So you just mentioned mindfulness training with CEOs, and I'd love to talk to you about that as well. You, uh, I've, I've talked to you before and researched you, you were, you were into mindfulness before it was as popular as it is today. Um, and I don't know if you work it into your radical candor training or workshops, or if it's a separate thing or you combine them, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the importance of mindfulness for you and maybe how it could also be effective in the workplace. It sounds like you're working with senior leaders. I'd love to hear your reflections on that because I, I may have mentioned this to you, the, the blue sky name for me came from a mindfulness prompt that I heard one time, which is, you know, there's always blue sky up there. Sometimes you got to get your head above the clouds. Um, and it helps, helps me stay positive. Cause I think I've started this Institute, like you mentioned to hold myself accountable yeah. <laughs> and stay optimistic. Um, ask my wife. Yeah. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on mindfulness, how it's been important to you and how you use it in your own work. Yeah. Well, I love the question. There's so many directions I could take it in and, you know, it is, it's so exciting to have mindfulness and, and and just like definitionally, what are we talking about? So I think first of all, you know, the awareness that arises when we're paying attention, you know, in the present moment on purpose, right. For, with sort of this non-judgmental attitude. So I think just, it, you know, it's almost become so popular and so mainstream. I think it's helpful to clarify that mindfulness is something that we all can have access to. I think it's just our, our kind of natural state. And yet as we get older and as this stuff gets sort of weighing on us, we we lose a connection to that that sort of inherent awareness that, that we all have. And one of the ways by which we can cultivate that state is through is through mindfulness meditation and other practices. So the specifically I was teaching mindfulness meditation. And my background, you know, for decades had been almost like a closet meditator. I mean, when I was at Harvard Business School, I was definitely the only, <laughs> or one of the only, you know, doing yoga and meditation. And so I moved to Los Angeles, you know, late nineties, and then to go back to my business school reunion decades later, and all of a sudden all the things were at the curriculum. So that was very gratifying, uh, you know, albeit a little exhausting because it's it's a little hard to be a, ahead of ahead of your time. Um, but, you know, for me, my journey was like just dealing with my own anxiety, depression, perfectionism, you know, 
what sort of makes me happy? Who am I really? And so I like to say I've been having my uh, midlife crisis, you know, again, an overachiever for, for decades. So it's just like, okay, so, but these tools that I started exploring, you know, even at college in my 20s, um, I think the real benefit for leaders and in the workplace uh, certainly is around clarity around able to manage difficult emotions around you know connecting to you know for me it's not just the space within the optimism but connecting to your purpose like really allowing that settling to happen so that i can make a more efficient decision and so i'd been doing all these different practices and then 10 years ago heard about google had a search inside yourself training program and search inside yourself was created at Google originally as a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. So these are quite familiar, you know, well-known now, John Kabat-Zinn, who created um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. And like, okay, let's, Google engineers are stressed. Let's give them stress reduction. Like that was the original idea. Well, <laughs> turned out nobody signed up because folks were like, I'm not giving up my stress. Like stress is how I get stuff done. Like I'm not going to let that go. So I was like, okay. So what they realized was the awareness that's cultivated through practicing mindfulness is actually very similar, if not the same as the awareness that you need for emotional intelligence. And so all the work that Daniel Goleman and other folks in that space. And so it was the, I think the really cutting edge at the time marriage of these practices using neuroscience, what we were just starting to learn through fMRIs that, you know, there's so much of explosion of research, but cultivating these practices to develop the awareness so that I can become a better leader. And so that was really that program, which, you know, 10 years ago is one of the first 30 people Uh, at the time to be certified, to bring it outside of Google. And I will just say like the organization I was working in didn't want to fund it. Like it was like out there and woo woo, et cetera. And so when I look at, you know, my boss at the time, one of the things that he did, when you think about how do people sort of show you what care personally looks like, he found budget for me to do the training because even though he knew the company wasn't behind it, it was what I needed for my growth. And so it's like those kinds of things that show that someone sort of is invested in you, that when they give you this difficult criticism and as a perfectionist, like really stung in the moment, it's like, oh, but he is doing this because he's so invested in my success. And so from there, I went on to teaching uh, CEOs at, at an organization called Vistage and other CEO organizations, YPO, which I'd been involved with. Um, and, and so the reason why I think these tools are so important is because, like I said, to pre- I would not be teaching radical candor had I not done this amount and level of work, given how sensitive I am and, and my perfectionism. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I found... Personally, and, I, and I've seen it in other people, I think it's increasingly valuable to have these skills or to, these practices given just the inundation of information and stimulation and just in our own personal lives with social media and phones and you know, supercomputers in our pockets and everything. And then also put it in a business context. There's just so much information coming at people in business and leaders. And how can you sort of distill that down, stay calm, be yourself? It's it's hard, and I don't think you know evolutionarily we're really wired to to take all this in. So how do you stay centered and calm and in the midst of this? I, I find these principles to be very helpful. Hundred percent. And by the way, like even since I started teaching to now, um, I do less 
sort of purely mindfulness training. I do bring it into my my training. Sometimes I'll do a little breath exercise. I'll speak to it. It's not as much in my current day-to-day, but I will say to practice this, these are some of the tools, whether it's going for a walk, whether it's having think time, whatever you, the, the specific tools that you need to do to sort of put the phone down and get present. One of the things I love are these sort of micro practices. So whether it's three breaths, whether it's uh, you know, closing your eyes and doing a visualization, whether it's literally just going for a five minute walk. Um, because like you said, these supercomputers, they are wired to distract us and are like, I think there is no greater strength that we can build apart from our attention. Because if we don't have our attention and our ability to place our attention on what matters to us, like our intention, then we're not driving the show. You know, there's enough like uncertainty that we have, but am I creating my day or am I letting my day be created by whatever inputs are coming in through the phone? It's worth underscoring what Amy said about demonstrating or defining what good looks like in your organization. We're sometimes quick to criticize or point out the don'ts, but we fail to emphasize the do's or give direct positive feedback when someone in the organization is doing something right. And the more difficult guidance goes down a whole lot better when it's been balanced by positive input as well. And I like the way she talks about creating our days as opposed to the phone doing it for us. How many times have we picked up a device to check on one thing only to have it pull us down a rabbit hole for the next 10 minutes? To wrap up my conversation with Amy, I found out something about her in my research that might not have a whole lot to do with the rest of our conversation, but I just had to ask. I think you're the first person I've ever met who's actually walked on hot coals, not once, but I believe six times. I'm curious to know why, how, what I've, I, when, you know, when I was a kid, I heard someone say online, it's so true. I watched way too much TV as a kid. And when you watch too much TV as a kid, when you were little, you thought a leasing, leading cause of death was quicksand because it happened like all the time on TV. And, and then there was all these things about walking on coals, but it, and, but I, I've never known someone who's actually done it. So I just love to hear about that. All right. Well, I can't resist. I, I'm so sorry. I will try to be brief, but I knew we had had a lot in common. I watched way too much television, specifically the Brady Bunch. I did write a course as an undergraduate, a, a, a paper on the Brady Bunch. I wrote a paper on sex in the city in business school. And uh, uh, yeah, so anyhow, all the way of saying I, I watched too much television, there was a lot of quick, there were big spiders, there was quicksand. Um, yeah, there were a lot of perils on those uh, those sitcoms, um, but luckily resolved in 22 minutes. So Walking on Fire, by the way, I did do it a seventh time into 2023. I need to update my bio. This is something I've done. I, I also do a, a meditation practice, a breath work, a, a breathing practice. And this is another modality that's just exploded in popularity. There's different kinds out there. People might be aware of um, Wim Hof or different yogic breathing. This is you're, you're lying down, you breathe in the lower belly, the upper chest, and then you exhale. When I was first introduced to this type of uh, breathwork um, healing practice over 10 years ago, had these incredibly transformative experiences really quickly. And so I had this like, oh, okay, I understand what all these meditation books and 
people have been talking, like I, I had a cellular memory experience of it. And so with the firewalking, which I've, I've only done, my teacher, uh, David Elliott, uh, give him a shout out. I would only do it with David. I feel complete trust there. But what happens is you've already been doing this sort of meditation. So you're already in a slightly altered state. He has been creating a relationship with this is in New Mexico, with the trees, with this and all the different elements that are going into this. And so there's a real honoring and relationship with nature. And then what happens is, is that you, going back to intention and purpose, you you pick a word that will resonate with you. So uh, I've picked words like, you know, thank you or freedom or, or love. Um, and the group is all kind of on the side. So you've got sort of your community because I think we can't heal without community. So you've got community, you're looking up at a star, which no matter how cloudy it is, there always ends up being a star. So you're looking up because by the way, if you look down, your your brain's going to be like, what the heck am I like? right? That's how you get burned. So you look up, you keep up at the blue sky and you start saying, my body will do whatever it must to let me walk on fire. And you're sort of in this uh, slightly altered state. And and the group is saying, my body will do whatever it must to let me walk on fire. I'll I'll share a quick story what happened this year, which was hilarious, which is that um, I was starting to get a little nervous. And David said, like, what's your word? And I said, "Um, ready. And he's like, just tell, it's okay. Just tell me when you're ready. And I'm like, I'm ready. Like that was actually my word. It was like an Abbott and Costello routine. So (laughs) we kept, he's like, just don't wait, you know, go when you're ready. So then I'm like, I'm ready. And I ran and that was my word. Um, and so it was this, uh, and it's, it's, you know, some people sort of walk or dance across it. I tend to go across it pretty quickly, but I think the reason why it works is because first of all, you've done the preparation. So you're sort of in the right mindset. You're looking up. So your brain isn't saying this makes zero analytical sense. You've got community. And for me, I've got this sort of trusted coach there. Um, and it's very much a relationship that has been cultivated and built with, with nature. And when you're across and back on safe land, it's like the greatest feeling in the world. I imagine. It's, it's, yeah, it's really quite a high. And there's always, um, folks at the end to sort of called catchers, they catch you. And then you're taken over to this little, you know, like baby plastic blow up pool with water and people like wipe your feet. And so there's like a very sort of nurturing element too. honestly, the hardest part for me, because I'm sensitive to cold, which is ironic since I'm from Boston and I know you've got that, we've got the main connection is that my feet are really cold being barefoot in the December, New Mexico uh, snow. But yeah, it's the reason why I do this over and over bill is because it just reminds me that anything is possible. That's a great way to wrap it up. Amy, this has been such a pleasure. I think the work you're doing is really important. We mentioned it before. I think that one of the challenges people have in maintaining a hopeful, positive, optimistic outlook is that work is a big part of their lives. It often defines who they are. And a lot of people work in toxic environments. And so I think the work you're doing is extremely important. And um, I loved the book and I am so glad we had this chance to share it. And if you haven't read Radical Candor out there, grab a copy. And uh, I assume there's a website where someone wanted to hire you all for a seminar or a a workshop that's easy to find. Absolutely. Radicalcandor.com. We've got lots of content for you. We've got a podcast. I'm the podcast host there. So radicalcandor.com, the podcast. By the way, we have a new uh, masterclass uh, with Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, our CEO. So there's a masterclass. There's a video book through Lit. We've got a, um, a 
TV show with David Allen Greer, a comedy, workplace comedy called uh, The Feedback Loop. So lots of lots of fun ways to learn about radical candor. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure and I love the work that you're doing and I'm just excited to be a part of it. Thanks, Amy. Okay, I'm glad I asked about walking on the hot coals. I have some phobias, particularly a fear of heights, so I'd never jump out of an airplane and skydive. But the coal thing is intriguing. I think my word would be hustle. And speaking of phobias, the quicksand thing on TV and movies during my childhood is not something I made up. Thanks to the remarkable and ridiculous range of things you can find out online, the website groovyhistory.com Now, I don't have this bookmark, but it popped up in a search. It has a chart showing 3% of all movies made in the 1960s included quicksand. Most famously, the Oscar-decorated Lawrence of Arabia. And on TV during my formative years, quicksand found its way into plots for The Lone Ranger, The Wild Wild West, Sea Hunt, The Rifleman, Gilligan's Island, Batman, The Lucy Show, Lost in Space, and The Incredible Hulk. So there, and don't let anyone tell you, you don't learn anything of value from listening to this podcast. And I hope you also learn something about the practice and value of radical candor and can find some ways to bring these practices into your relationships, both inside and outside your organization. To learn more about all of this, I highly recommend Kim Scott's book and check out RadicalCandor.com to find out more about Amy Sandler's podcast and the services the organization provides. And speaking of radical direct feedback, please consider giving Blue Sky a rating before you go. And to be sure you don't miss any future episodes, sign up to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this content, follow the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the host of Blue Sky and founder of the Optimism Institute, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.